Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 218, Dr. Jerry Walls on Roman Catholic and Christian Foundational Claims. This episode of the Trinity's podcast is an interesting presentation from the Southwest Region meeting of the Evangelical Philosophical Society, which was held in conjunction with the Evangelical Theological Society meeting at the Havard School of the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Houston, Texas. Dr. Jerry Walls is a professor of philosophy at Houston Baptist University. The author of a large number of professional articles, he's perhaps best known for his books, which include Hell, The Logic of Damnation, Heaven, The Logic of Eternal Joy, Why I Am Not a Calvinist, Good God, The Theistic Foundations of Morality, Purgatory, The Logic of Total Transformation, and most recently, Roman but not Catholic, What Remains at Stake 500 Years After the Reformation, which was co-authored with Kenneth J. Collins. In this interesting talk, he compares and contrasts what he says are foundational claims, first, to Roman Catholicism, and second, to what he calls Orthodox Christianity, by which he means Christianity rightly understood. I think, taken as a whole, the presentation constitutes a potent objection to traditional Roman Catholic claims, and presents a real problem for popular-level Roman Catholic apologetics. It's a real action-packed talk, and Dr. Walls doesn't quite have time to present the whole thing, so he has to summarize a bit at the end, but I think you'll find it thought-provoking. Thanks to Dr. Walls for letting us in on his presentation. I did ask him at the last minute, right as he was about to get up to speak, and he was an excellent sport, and I hope we can have him on the podcast sometime again. I am Jerry Walls from Houston Baptist University. And the title of my talk is, If Christ Be Not Raised, If Peter Was Not the First Pope, Parallel Cases of Essential Doctrinal Foundations. And what I'm going to argue very concisely is this claim. The papacy is to Roman Catholicism what the resurrection of Jesus is to Orthodox Creedal Christianity. It is, in other words, an essential foundation for Roman Catholicism in the same way that the resurrection is for Orthodox Christianity. So I don't need to belabor this. I take it that Christ's resurrection is utterly foundational for Christian Orthodoxy. For instance, the distinctively Christian doctrines all hinge upon the fact that the resurrection actually occurred. So take the central Christian doctrines of the Incarnation and the Trinity and the Atonement All of this hinges on the claim that Christ really was raised from the dead. As Paul put it in Romans 1.4, Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead. So the realization that he was the Son of God made clear that his death on the cross was no ordinary event and uh, the later reflection on that led to the doctrine of atonement and then the coming of the Holy Spirit on, on Pentecost Reflection on that led to the formulation of the doctrine of the Trinity later on. Now, all of this must be taken into account when we read Paul's stark and pointed reflections 
on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 and his insistence that it is utterly essential to the integrity of the Christian faith. So in a series of rather striking counterfactual statements, he draws out the far-reaching implications if Christ be not raised. If Christ be not raised, our faith is in vain. One of the most uh, striking of these claims is if Christ has not been raised, Christians are speaking falsely of God. So no resurrection... There's no reason to believe in incarnation, deity of Jesus, no reason to believe atonement, no reason certainly to believe in Trinity. So Christians, in claiming all of these things, if Christ be not raised, they're utterly misrepresenting the foundational essential truth about who God is. Now, let us turn to consider how claims about the papacy play a role in Roman Catholic theology that is analogous to the role of the resurrection of Jesus in Orthodox Christianity. That is to say, the distinctive claims of Roman Catholicism depend on the truth of papal claims in a way similar to the way core Christian doctrines depend on the resurrection. So Roman Catholic claims about the papacy have undeniably played a central part in the issues that divide Rome from Protestants as well as the Eastern Orthodox. Now these points of contention undoubtedly are ecclesial, broadly speaking, and reflect different views about the nature of the church. But claims about the papacy are integral to these disputes. So Rome views itself and churches in communion with it as the only ones that have full Christian integrity in terms of doctrine and ecclesiology. Other Christians and ecclesial communities are seen as at best separated brethren who remain out of communion with the one true church. Consider the following claim from the Catholic Catechism that the task of interpreting the Word of God is the exclusive prerogative of the teaching office of the Roman Catholic Church. And I quote, The task of giving an authentic interpretation of the Word of God, whether in its written form or in the form of tradition, has been trusted to the living teaching office of the church alone. Notice that, alone. Its authority in this matter is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. Next line, very significant. This means, notice what this means. This means that the task of interpretation has been entrusted to the bishops in communion with the successor of Peter, the Bishop of Rome. Now, in the same vein, consider this claim, also from the Catechism. It is clear, therefore, that in the supremely wise arrangement of God, sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the magisterium of the church are so connected and associated that one of them cannot stand without the others. Now the implication of this is pretty obvious, right? To those who attempt to defend and maintain the authority of Scripture with uh, integrity or even traditional doctrines like the creeds, you can't do it apparently if you do not also rely on the magisterium of the Roman Church. And again, the magisterium is composed of those bishops in communion with the Pope, the Bishop of Rome. So. This rejects the integrity of those uh, traditions who do not acknowledge the papal authority. Now, I want to delve into this matter more deeply by considering classic Roman claims about the papacy. In particular, 
I'm going to quote at some length from the First Vatican Council where the apex of papal uh, claims was articulated in the doctrine of papal infallibility. So there are several texts now I'm going to look at and examining these passages will, uh, will make clear what Rome claims about the papacy as well as what is at stake in their claims, all right? So these texts that, I'm, uh, that I've quoted here are the texts that lead up to the articulation of the doctrine of papal infallibility. So this is the ground for it, this is the warrant for it, this is the basis for the papal doctrine of, uh, of infallibility. Number one, we teach and declare that according to the gospel evidence, a primacy of jurisdiction over the whole church of God was immediately and directly promised to the blessed Apostle Peter and conferred on him by Christ the Lord. Alright? Immediately and directly given jurisdiction over the whole church. That's a pretty strong claim to put it uh, mildly. Number two, and it was to Peter alone that Jesus after his resurrection confided the jurisdiction of supreme pastor and ruler of the whole fold saying, feed my lambs. Number four, and again, I don't quote all these, I'm just selecting some of them. Number four, to this absolutely manifest teaching of sacred scripture, as it has always been understood by the Catholic Church, are clearly opposed the distorted opinions of those who misrepresent the form of government which Christ the Lord established in his church and deny that Peter, in preference to the rest of the apostles, taken sing singly or collectively, was endowed by Christ with a true and proper primacy of jurisdiction. Notice, particularly in the passages I've got in bold, I put the bold in, that's not in the original. But notice particularly this phrase, this is the absolutely manifest teaching of sacred scriptures. All right, so nothing ambiguous about it apparently. Apparently it's quite, quite clear and apparent. <clears throat> Number six, therefore, if anyone says that blessed Peter the apostle was not appointed by Christ the Lord as prince of the apostles and visible head, notice visible head, of the whole church militant, or that it was a primacy of honor only, which is what the Eastern Orthodox say, by the way, and not one of true and proper jurisdiction, and that he directly and immediately received from our Lord Jesus Christ himself, let him be anathema. All right? So that's a very strong claim to put it mildly. If you deny this stuff, you're anathematized, which is to be uh, under a, a sort of a curse. All right? Now, next passage, which I quote, for no one can be in doubt, indeed it was known in every age that the holy and most blessed Peter, prince and head of the apostles, the pillar of faith and the, and the foundation of the Catholic Church, received the keys of the kingdom from our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Redeemer of the human race, and that to this day and forever he lives and presides and exercises judgment in his successors, the bishops of the Holy Roman See, which he founded and consecrated with his blood. Now notice what uh, cannot be in doubt are these very strong claims again uh, about the papacy. And pretty clearly what is at stake here is the Roman claim and interpretation. I mean, nobody claimed, doubts that Jesus said these words. The question is what did they mean? So what they're claiming can't be in doubt is the Roman understanding 
these lines from Matthew. Next passage, number five. Therefore, if anyone says that it was not by the institution of Christ the Lord himself, that is, by divine law, that blessed Peter should have perpetual successors in the primacy of the whole church, or that the Roman pontiff is not the successor of blessed Peter, let him be anathema. I won't quote anymore. I think it's sufficiently clear that you get the point about how strong these claims are and the substance of what supports and underlies classic papal dogma in the Roman church. And again, this is what led up to the climactic chapter 4 of the Vatican Council I uh, in this section, which affirms and defines the doctrine of papal infallibility. When the Trinity's podcast returns, is this still official Roman Catholic doctrine even after the famous Vatican II Council of the 1960s? noting that the Second Vatican Council in its document Lumen Gentium reiterated the doctrine of infallibility for the quote successor of Peter and the supreme shepherd and teacher of the faithful. Now it is interesting to note that this council attempted to give a stronger emphasis to collegial leadership for the whole council of bishops in Vatican II. They attempted to, to, to do this. This effort however was resisted interestingly by Pope Paul VI, who thought the document had compromised papal authority. So after the official document had been written, Pope Paul VI inserted a, quote, note of explanation that asserted a stronger view of his own authority than the document seemed to affirm. So this was after the document had already been voted on, he inserted unilaterally his note of explanation to make clear that this stuff on collegiality did not in any way compromise his unique papal authority. So here's what he wrote. It is up to the supreme pontiff to those whose care Christ's whole flock has been entrusted to determine, according to the needs of the church as they change over the course of centuries, the way in which this care may be best exercised, whether in a personal or a collegial way, okay, the Roman pontiff taking account of the church's welfare proceeds according to his own discretion in arranging, promoting, and approving the exercise of collegial activity. As supreme pastor of the church, the supreme pontiff can always exercise his power at will as his very office demands. Now I hope you get a sense of the strength and the substance of Roman claims about papal authority and the grounds upon which the doctrine of papal infallibility was asserted and defined. I want, to, uh, I want to now emphasize how there's an analogy between the role that the papal doctrine plays in Roman Catholicism and the role that the resurrection plays for Orthodox Christianity. Let me make three points to show the parallel. Point number one. 
Both claim that God has acted in certain definitive ways to reveal His truth for us for our salvation. In the resurrection, God the Father acted by raising Jesus from the dead to vindicate Him and demonstrate that He is His divine Son. In a similar fashion, the Roman claim is that God the Son acted to found the papacy by appointing Peter, Prince of the Apostles, visible head of the whole church militant, immediately and directly promising him, and thereby conferring upon him a primacy of jurisdiction over the whole church. Moreover, he instituted the papacy as a permanent office so that Peter should have perpetual successors with jurisdiction over the whole church. Notice also that Rome claims that its understanding of Christ's words to Peter in this regard represent the, quote, absolutely manifest teaching of sacred scripture. Secondly, in both cases, it is claimed that these acts of God were performed in the context of human history and that the effects were observable by human witnesses. Now, it's very important to get this point. A lot rides on this. So God the Father did not raise Jesus in such a fashion that it was a closely guarded secret that no one knew or witnessed. It is noteworthy that Paul begins his discussion of the resurrection by citing the various appearances of the risen Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8. His confidence that the risen Christ has truly appeared to various witnesses, including himself, matches his insistence that our faith is not in vain. Similarly, the claim that Christ instituted the papacy in the fashion Rome teaches also entails that it would be clearly known to Peter, by Peter, and presumably his successors if the Roman interpretation represents the absolutely manifest teaching of sacred scripture. So, given this and the importance of it, Peter would presumably hand on to his successors what he had immediately and directly received so clearly from Christ as Paul handed on what he had received. So Paul often talks about he's handed on faithfully what he received. So if, if Peter received this directly and immediately from Christ the Lord, and there's a lot writing on this claim for the church given Roman claims, surely you would think that Peter would just as faithfully pass on what he had received, as Paul said, he passed on what he had received. It seems pretty clear, at least. Moreover, the claims of Rome entail that Peter had immediate and ongoing successors who existed in history, people that were known and witnessed by their contemporaries. So again, this happened on the stage of history. Indeed, notice that the First Vatican Council insists that it was, quote, known in every age and cannot be doubted that Peter received the keys of the kingdom, and so on. Parallel number three. Given the claims about both the resurrection and the papacy, our salvation is at stake in accepting or denying these claims. Faith in Christ for salvation essentially involves the belief that God raised Jesus from the dead. Faith that he died for our sins hinges on the belief that he rose from the dead and confessing that he is Lord hinges on believing that God raised him from the dead. Similarly, the document cited above from Vatican II repeatedly anathematizes those who deny its claims. At the end of every section, those who do not accept these claims are anathematized. 
And it warns that no one can depart from its teaching about the status and authority of the Pope, quote, without endangering his faith and salvation. So in both cases, very strong claims are made about the vital importance of accepting the truth of what is proclaimed and the clear implications that follow. So there's the parallels. When the Trinity's podcast returns, so granting the parallels that Dr. Walls has pointed out, what's the problem? Here's where it gets interesting. There's also a major difference, and this is what I call a major evidential divide. Now then, with these similarities and analogies in mind, let us turn to consider a way in which the case of the resurrection of the papacy sharply diverge. In short, there's impressive historical evidence for the resurrection, but there is no such evidence at all for the Roman papal claims. Now the point here is very simple but one with far-reaching implications. If the historical evidence is at odds with Roman papal claims, then Rome's distinctive claims for itself are undermined and lose credibility. Now, of course, how one assesses the relevance of historical evidence depends on the larger issue of how much credence you give to evidence in general when assessing theological truth claims. Those who, for various reasons, place little or no stock in purported objective evidence, they may simply dismiss this negative evidence out of hand as being utterly irrelevant. But if you've got any kind of evidentialist convictions at all, historical facts and considerations can hardly be simply waved off in this fashion. So let us consider the issues before us in light of what I'm going to suggest is a very modest evidentialist standard, namely one suggested by Pascal, one of my favorite philosophers. First, consider this couplet in which Pascal indicates that revelation from God imposes obligations on us, but also that God has obligations to us in the way he gives us his revelation. Quote, men owe it to God to accept the truth he sends them. God owes it to men not to lead them into error. Now Pascal, you know, is under no illusion that reason is the ultimate source of authority or truth or anything of the like, but he's also confident that it is an essential guide that we must trust as far as it goes. And he repeatedly emphasizes that no sane person can be indifferent to these issues and that every sane person must, must do his best to try to find out the truth. And he's confident reason will take you a long way to where we're trying to get. He writes, Faith certainly tells us what the senses do not, but not the contrary of what they see. It is above, not against them. And more generally, Pascal proposes this rule. And I quote again, But the evidence is such as to exceed 
or at least equal the evidence to the contrary so that it cannot be reason that decides us against following it and therefore can only be concupiscence and wickedness of heart. So Pascal says the evidence for has got to be at least as good as the evidence against. So no one can say reason led me away from this. Okay, so, so the status of the evidence reveals this, you know, the, the, the condition of your heart. Now, returning to our two cases, it is a happy fact for Orthodox Christian belief that there is substantial evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Indeed, the evidence for the resurrection arguably far surpasses Pascal's minimal standard of at least being as good as the evidence against it. Uh, arguably far surpasses it. And I'm not going to spend much time on this because I'm confident this is familiar to all of you here today. But just to cite a couple of examples, very quickly, Richard Swinburne, who is here for EPS, famously argued in his book, uh, The Resurrection of God Incarnate, based on various probability considerations, that it's 97% probable that Jesus was raised from the dead. And that's a pretty high number, right? That's, that's not too bad. Uh, another quick one I will cite, j just mentioning, uh, my colleague Mike Lacona, who has written uh, a book on the resurrection of Jesus, relying only on what he calls, quote, historical bedrock, composed of facts that are a matter of consensus among scholars. He argues that Jesus' resurrection is, quote, very certain, a rendering higher on the spectrum of historical certainty than I had expected. So it's familiar to all you. I'm not going to belabor that point. Now, here's the point. The big contrast. When you turn to the Roman papal claims, however, matters are altogether different. In short, there is a strong scholarly consensus that the classic belief that Peter was the first pope is a pious myth, and indeed there was not even a monarchical bishop in Rome, let alone anyone who was recognized as having jurisdiction over the entire church, until sometime in the latter half of the second century, and some would argue even later than that. Now, it's important to recognize that this is not simply a consensus among Protestant and even Orthodox scholars, but it includes Roman Catholic historians as well. And this is an extraordinary realization with enormous implications that I'm amazed has not sunk in in lots of uh, popular Christianity. So a good place to begin to document this is with the distinguished Roman Catholic papal historian Eamon Duffy, who was on the Pontifical Historical Commission and his observance that all modern discussion of the issues must now start from the exhaustive and persuasive analysis by Peter Lampa, from Paul to Valentinus, Christians at Rome in the first two centuries. This is a difficult read for the non-specialist but it conveys, as no other work does, the extraordinary ferment of Roman Christianity. Now, Lampa's book is a, it's a very challenging read. I, I've, I've read it, and even for you know people with PhDs, if you're not a New Testament scholar or historian, it's, it's really technical and demanding, uh, I will readily, readily say, as described. But it's extraordinarily detailed and exhaustive in the sense that he studied every scrap of archaeological evidence available as well as all the literature pertinent to the question in early Roman Christianity. And what he came to argue is what he calls the fractionation thesis. And this is it in a nutshell. Quote, he says, The fractionation in Rome favored a collegial Presbyterian system of government 
and prevented for a long time until the second half of the second century the development of a monarchical episcopacy in the city. Now another aspect of Lampa's work that is very significant is he also offers a historical grammatical critique of Irenaeus' famous list of Roman bishops, a popular passage often cited by popular Roman apologists. And uh, he argues that this uh, list is, quote, with highest probability, a historical construction from the 180s when the monarchical episcopacy developed in Rome. In other words, it anachronistically imports into first century Rome what was first actually emerging in the 180s or so. And again, read Lampa for the detail. Now, in view of this, it is hardly surprising that at the outset of his authoritative book on the papacy, Duffy begins by sorting out the critical distinction between legend and reliable history. After noting that legend filled in the details of Peter's later life where the New Testament is silent, Duffy went on as follows. These stories were accepted as sober history by some of the greatest minds of the early church, Origen Ambrose Augustine, but they are pious romance, not history. And the fact is that we have no reliable accounts either of Peter's later life or the place of his death. Neither Peter nor Paul founded the church at Rome, for there were Christians in this city before either of the apostles set foot there. Nor can we assume, as Irenaeus did, that the apostles established there a succession of bishops to carry on the work of the city, for all the indications are that there was no single bishop of Rome for almost a century after the deaths of the apostles. In fact, wherever we turn, the solid outlines of the Petrine succession at Rome seem to blur and dissolve. Again, this is not a Protestant critic. This is a distinguished Roman Catholic papal historian saying this. Now just Think about this in light of what Vatican I said. Quite stark in the implications. Now, Duffy's not an exception. Let me cite one more example. The Roman Catholic papal historian Robert Eno, who sums up the evidence as follows. But the evidence available seems to point predominantly, if not decisively, in the direction of a collective leadership, that is to say, in early Rome. Dogmatic a priori thesis should not force us into presuming or requiring something the evidence leans against. The evidence from Clement, Hermit, Ignatius, all of whom were familiar with Roman Christianity and familiar with ecclesial life and wrote about it, not a single one of whom mentioned anything remotely about a pope or a monarchical bishop, right? The evidence points us in the direction of assuming that in the first century and into the second, there was no bishop of Rome in the usual sense of the word. Now, I go on. I don't have time here to look at this. I'm almost out of time. But I cite just briefly the evidence from, uh, from uh, Ignatius, who's particularly interesting, because he wrote these seven letters to, to, seven church, to seven churches and talks repeatedly about Episcopal authority and often names the name of the bishop in the, in the church to which he's writing in a number of cases and is, really seems almost obsessed with Episcopal authority and how important it is to, the, to, to yield to the authority of the bishop. Like 40-some references to bishops and Episcopal authority in his, in his letters. Now what's fascinating is these, these references all occur in six letters. And guess which one? There's not this reference to a bishop. The one to Rome. That's extraordinary, <coughs> given how obsessed he was with the authority of the episcopacy 
and the importance of it that he didn't say a word about it if the bishop of bishops of all bishops is residing in Rome. It's, it's, it's just quite, quite hard to believe that uh, there was one actually there uh, given his silence on this. And I, uh, in the book I've written, co-authored uh, Roman but not Catholic, I have a um, formal argument you know, looking at this spelled out in terms of, of, of Bayesian uh, kind of probability considerations. But at any rate, what is striking here is the contrast between these critical historians and what you read among popular Roman Catholic apologetics. And uh, you read this literature and it sounds like the claims of Vatican I remain altogether intact as if there's no problem at all, you know. So, so you read these guys and I'll refer to Pope Linus and Pope whatever, you know, the, these guys is just, everybody knows this, you know, the, 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 these guys were the first popes with no, no acknowledgement whatever of the historical consensus of the scholars and their own church. So for instance, Devin Rose is a one such popular apologist. He writes, the church had a pope of visible head from the beginning. In fact, we know the names and approximate dates of all the popes all the way back from the first century. Peter first, then Linus, Anacletus, and Clement I. And again, what is striking here is just the, the, the utter difference between what he says here, the breezy assurance about these popes, and what Eno and Eamon Duffy, who are genuine, serious, critical historians, say about the early history of the papacy and its non-existence. There was no pope in first century Rome. They freely concede. They don't you know, pretend not on any anything like, uh, like uh, Rome understands the term. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Walls asks why there is this disconnect between pop Roman Catholic apologetics and serious academic history. what I find fascinating. There's probably more going on than, than simple disregard for serious scholarship in this popular apologetics. Perhaps what we see reflected in Rose's breezy reiteration of traditional papal claims is a stark recognition of what is at stake in these traditional Roman claims and the implications that follow if these claims are given up. If Rome's distinctive claims to be the one true church do indeed hinge on the truth of traditional papal theology, and historical claims, then to give up that theology and history is to give up the distinctive claims to be the one true church. And if there's anything popular apologists are all about, it's a maintaining that Rome is the one true church. So they gotta, you know, talk like, you know, everything is just like it was back in Vatican I, all these claims are right there, and we can talk about Pope Linus and Pope Anacletus and all this kind of stuff as if everybody knows this, when in fact, critical scholars, as I say, reject this. Well, this is only about half the paper, but I'm almost out of time. But what I do in the rest of it is um, consider ways of saving the hypothesis. One, you can just um, say objective evidence doesn't matter. And the essential claim is that Christ was raised from the dead. The claim is not that there's objective evidence. 
And the essential claim is all this stuff in Vatican I. The claim is not that there's historical evidence, okay? You can do that, but uh, you know, you need to make sure you're not doing it as an ad hoc appeal. And secondly, it'll be certainly counterintuitive to lots of people that truths as important as traditional papal claims with so much writing on them must be believed in the face of such strong counter evidence. So back again to that Pascalian kind of dictum, you know, we owe it to God to accept the revelation he's given to us. God owes it to us not to mislead us. So if the critical historians, you know, have a strong consensus that this is not true, and yet you're anathematized for not believing it, that's a pretty serious problem, you know. So, so, the, so, so, so your critical faculties functioning at their best lead you away from this belief, but you're dogmatically required to believe it on pain of, you know, being anathematized or even damned. So that's a pretty, pretty big issue. Secondly, you might appeal to the doctrine of development, which I think has no hope at all. Thirdly, you might say, well, okay, it didn't happen the way, you know, Vatican I said it did, you know, uh, but we can still support it by, you know, saying that there were hints of it, there were intimations of it, things like this, you know, but, but it's not, not quite. Well, well, this is analogous to what liberals do with the resurrection of Jesus. The, the like who would say that what really generated faith in the resurrection was not real appearances of Jesus. He didn't really appear to anyone and the tomb wasn't really empty. But hey, resurrection faith was still generated by some kind of a conversion experience and that's good enough. Right? What a lot of these scholars are doing is basically they're doing with the papacy what liberal theologians and New Testament scholars do with the resurrection. And saying, well, it didn't happen the way we thought it did, but here's, here's the way it did happen, and that's good enough. That, that still is enough to sustain the faith. And then finally, I uh, consider the possibility that you might appeal to planning as a basic, uh, basic belief, and uh, he argues that you can be warranted in believing in Christian doctrine even without any objective evidence. But it's one thing to say you can do it without objective evidence in your favor. It's another thing to say you can believe it if there's objective evidence strongly against your claims, which is another matter altogether. And Plantinga concedes that in that case, the history could in fact undermine your belief. And so I think uh, what Plantinga has suggested as a hypothetical possibility, in closing, I would say, appears to be an actual dilemma for conservative Roman Catholics who affirm traditional papal doctrine. The bottom line here is this. The strong claims Rome makes for herself require sufficient warrant if those claims are to be taken as true. There is, in fact, very strong evidence that the historical claims that have traditionally underwritten papal theology and Rome's distinctive claims to authority are simply false. And if they're false, Rome's traditional papal theology and distinctive claims to authority are accordingly undermined and should be rejected. That's it. I'm out of time. So. Did Dr. Walls make a strong case? Let us know what you think in the Facebook group or on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. This week's thinking music has been the track Line of Flight by Revolution Void. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download that entire track.
If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook. And help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinities Podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.